Hi, it's Caroline and you're listening to the Fuck It Diet Podcast. (sighs) This is a podcast that talks about diet culture and lots of things related to diet culture and it's also really casual and some people hate it so I'm just letting you know right now. Um, Today, I cannot even tell you how excited I am to share the conversation that I had with Dr. Devin Price about laziness as a concept and why it's extremely flawed. Um, I feel like this is such a parallel to diet culture and to um, diet binge yo-yos and the beliefs that we have about what normal eating is like and I feel like we have a lot of similar beliefs about what normal resting is like or normal amounts of energy. Um, I really do think there's a lot of overlap between this idea of laziness and this idea of food addiction. Um, But also, if you've been around here long enough, you know that I'm a huge fan of resting and I think you know, beyond just physical resting that comes along with healing your relationship with food, this sort of like existential rest and this, um, you know, we feel like we don't deserve rest. We don't deserve to zone out. We don't deserve to cancel plans or take our time or um, just do less. And I think that that is a huge problem. And again, I think it goes hand in hand with diet culture. So this is a pretty long conversation that I had with Devin. And so I'm just going to jump right into it. I'm just going to share the conversation and I hope you enjoy it. And before I start the conversation, I'm going to share a word from this episode's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Side by Side Nutrition. Side by Side's dietitians work to empower people to become their own nutrition experts. Their team of health at every size and weight inclusive nutrition therapists work virtually all over the United States and locally in Colorado. They work both individually with clients of all ages, genders, and diagnoses, in addition to running groups, including a body image group and a binge eating group. They put out free weekly content on their YouTube channel, blog, and Instagram to help inspire your journey to a trusting and self-compassionate relationship with food in your body. And they offer one-on-one nutrition and body image therapy to those who struggle with eating disorders, disordered eating, and chronic dieting. They also take a variety of insurances, including the large commercial insurance companies Cigna, Aetna, and United Healthcare, which is really helpful. And if you're ready to work one-on-one, you can email contact at sidebysidenutrition.com, or you can find the number to call in the show notes of this episode. That is sidebysidenutrition.com. Devin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really, really excited to talk to you about the laziness lie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I can't even tell you it's, it's a little bit ironic because I've been feeling very unmotivated this entire pandemic, especially. Um, and once I started collecting questions for, for this topic to talk to you about from Instagram and reading the book and taking notes, I was like, Oh my God, I have so much energy. I'm genuinely excited and energized by talking about laziness. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. It's also for me, one of the topics I don't get bored of. I'm usually someone who will like dive into a topic for an amount of time or an activity and then and then I have like no drive once I get bored of it. But like railing against the system is something I always can get like renewed rage or spite or 
Yes, because it never ends. I mean, it's coming at you from a million different directions every single day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Workaholism was bad before this, and now it's taken on such a strange, uh, apocalyptic digital flavor. Um, So there's always new ways to talk about it, unfortunately. Right. So um, will you let everyone know what you do, you know, what, what you do for a living and also how you got into talking about laziness and writing a book on laziness or the lack of laziness actually. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Our culture's hatred of like the idea of laziness. Yeah. Um, so I'm a uh, professor at, uh, Loyola university, Chicago, and I'm in the school of continuing and professional studies, which I think is important to point out because all of my students are working adults. Mm. Um, so we've always had online classes and evening classes, and this is a population of people I've been teaching for 10 years now who all, Um, have internalized some amount of shame, which is just so absurd to me. Um, Like they all are working full-time jobs, raising kids, uh, dealing with elder care requirements. Like they were doing all of those things and going to school like uh, pre-pandemic, having to juggle those things. And a lot of them were people who had um, gone to school briefly on the traditional quote-unquote timeline and then had to drop out or, or pause or whatever. And they all like thought they were horrible students, most of my students. Mm. These incredibly driven, absurdly busy people had thought they weren't good at school, thought that they were lazy because of something some teacher or professor had said to them somewhere down the line, or just some adversity that had gotten in their way that like, of course that impacted their schooling. So that was something that was like always like kind of bubbling in the background for me in the years that I've been teaching this population. Um, and then I also myself have like workaholism disease uh, <laughs> and, and perfectionism brain and had come to recognize after finishing my PhD um, at a pretty young age that like I'm checking off all of these societal boxes of things I'm supposed to be doing. I look so like virtuous on paper and I feel horrible and I don't feel like I've done anything more. As soon as I accomplish something, it feels like it dissolves on my tongue. Oh. Um, and then what I'm also exhausted. <laughs> yeah. So these kind of things all kind of coalesced uh, over time, just noticing that, you know what, no matter what, you actually can't win in our society because um, the goalpost always moves. And it, it, in reading your book, so I, I've read an early galley version of your book laziness does not exist and i can't even tell you how i'm going to be recommending this book for a very very long time it's going to become one of my go-to's because not only is it extremely relevant to i think every single person and especially every single person who i work with and my readers i think there's a huge overlap with um with diet culture they're they're very they're very similar, this productivity culture, this uh, laziness-like culture, and there's a huge overlap, especially for the kind of um, perfectionistic, workaholic people who tend to you know, take, take diet culture too far as well. Um, so it's just extremely relevant, I think. Um, and I, I really don't think there's anybody who will not read it and see something in it that that is reflective of how they operate or what they think of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Our culture of workaholism and perfectionism has its tendrils kind of in almost everything. And I think um, 
the hatred of laziness and laziness is this myth of like this internal moral failing is so tied up in our hatred of fat people and fat, fat bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, those two things are extremely closely linked. The idea that we blame a person for anything, any suffering that they have that is actually a systemic issue. So for yes. example, just looking at the huge healthcare disparities and access to healthcare disparities that fat people have mm-hmm. um, and the lack of preventative healthcare that they can get because doctors just tell them, oh, you know, you're in pain, you need to lose weight first. Uh, and yet when then when people have uh, health complications as a result of a lack of healthcare, uh, we still turn around as a society and say, oh no, it's just because you're fat. It's because you didn't try hard enough. It's because right. you didn't meet this perfect ideal. Um, so those two things are really closely tied up. Um, and I do talk a little bit in the book about how um, my big like burnout moment after I finished grad school, it was workaholism and it was also eating disordered behaviors. And mm-hmm. those two kind of really tied up that mm-hmm. no matter how sick I felt, I thought I had to exercise a certain amount every day and I had to get a certain amount of work done and just never giving myself any leeway to have like human needs. Yes. And that is actually something that I'm writing or I'm editing my second book right now. And I'm trying to, it's, it's kind of through my own personal experience with all of this stuff, but dr- explain and, and show how common it is in our culture for exhausted, burnt out, or chronically ill people to be told that the answer is a more strict diet, more exercise when what they probably really need is rest and like an overhaul of the way that they're approaching life. And we, we don't get that, or we don't oftentimes until we hit rock bottom and find an alternate alternative way of approaching life, we don't even realize that that's what we actually need. Yeah, yeah, we try to like, and we're convinced socially to like bargain basically with like every other thing that we can do other than do less, basically. Yeah, like, Like, why am I so tired? (laughs) Why? Maybe maybe you need to sleep more. Maybe you're doing too much. Why am I so hungry? Maybe you need to eat more. But that's like, we that couldn't possibly be the answer, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, You know, workplaces right now are trying to deal with the massive mental health toll of work from home and COVID and everything else with like, oh, here's a mental health webinar that you need to like schedule or like, have you thought of cramming self-care into your schedule? And I think to go with the the diet uh, aspect uh, that you're using as an example too, like, even if maybe like have eating something a little bit different or like having more variety of types of foods would be like good for some people or and say maybe some people that would be beneficial to them. Where are you going to get the time to like cook yeah. and, and do those things? Um, and it's just another thing that people feel so much pressure to like. Exactly. Yeah. It's not that exercise isn't good for you. It's not that having a varied nourishing diet isn't good for you, but we're approaching it or we're expected to approach it from this very militaristic way that, you know, we need sort of to step back and look at the big picture as opposed to like, okay, maybe I'll just cut out X, Y, Z, you know, and, and that, and wake up three hours earlier. And we're not understanding that I think the exhaustion and the stress piece, how, how much of a toll that takes on us and our health. And we, we actually had a very similar in just in reading your own burnout story, you know, I had a very similar like 
chronic illness, chronic fatigue, what's wrong with me? What, what do I need to change in my diet? What do I, you know, how can I be more perfect? How can I self-help myself to not being so tired um, and sick? And the answer, which I finally came to, thank God, was that my two years of rest, <laughs> I was like, I just like, eventually it became clear. It took a very, very long time. And it took me going through my, my fuck it diet first to be like, oh, I'm still doing this. I'm still applying sort of like diet culture beliefs to other areas of my life, to personal, to, you know, my personal life and my, my work life. And that, that was where I really needed the overhaul. So we, I, I definitely resonated with you know, hearing that part of your story. Yeah. And I think um, more broadly, what so many people don't realize is how much work it is to recover and restore your health in whatever way it is that a particular person needs it, right? Like, so whether yeah. it's coping with depression or grief or, um, you know, ex like a year or two of extreme hunger following an eating disorder in yeah. my case, that is a ton of mental work, emotional work. It's time consuming. It's really energy draining. Yeah. And we don't give ourselves credit for how busy we are dealing with those things because they don't have this like shiny product that you can take a picture of or that you can email someone about um, and say that like, I did the thing, you know? You are so right. You're so right. And until you kind of find resources that, that explain how legitimate the exhaustion is, you know, the exhaustion that comes from healing or the exhaustion that comes from um, just resisting anything, like, you know, all that pressure in our culture, we're just going to continually be really hard on ourselves. And I think that your book is a really great resource for that. It, honestly, like reading it, I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to send this to everybody. And even, I mean, like I am a very rest focused person and I still was like, oh my God, this is so nice. It's like such a nice reminder. Because I let it, I let it get to me still for sure. Yeah, I think it's impossible not to. Like one thing that I try to stress in this book that is that um, so like in the past, most of our conversations about this stuff as a society have been very individualized, self-care, do this, you know, self-advocacy. And I do talk about that stuff, but it's also there's so many systemic forces around all of us that make it kind of impossible for us as individuals to completely escape um, that pressure. So we're going to always have to constantly work to unlearn it. And, um, you know, there, just when I think that I've got it figured out, I find some <laughs> weird thing that I'm telling myself, oh, I need to post to my Instagram grid once a day. Right. Who, who cares? Know. Like, you know, know, like things like that. I, t I absolutely, absolutely, especially during this pandemic, I'm like, how can I feel? You know, and I do think that you know, there, there's a balance, right? Like I genuinely do feel good often, like gen inherently intuitively good when I have a project, when I have, when I do feel like I have, you know, exciting things to focus on and I'm making a little bit of headway, but it's the, the kind of the toxic, um, that those toxic shoulds that aren't, that are pretty arbitrary, you know, that that's where I, we all, I think need to, to have a little bit more awareness and, and self-compassion, I feel like. Yeah. Um, I, 
I talk about it a little bit in the book that it's really, it's not about just doing nothing or, you know, I mean, if you don't want to do anything, that's rad too. But like, <laughs> it's more about like trying to get in line with your own values, yes. like what's yes. sucking up a ton of your time because um, people think you need to be doing it or you feel social pressure to do it versus what makes you feel whole, what makes you feel good, what makes you feel authentic, what feels like a good um, and ethical use of your time. And of course, a lot of us don't have complete freedom to set our schedules around that, but as much as we can cut back on the things that we don't actually care about and aren't like soul nourishing to us and instead putting energy into the things that are, whatever they are, um, you know, the more life is worth living. It's so, I mean, this example of me being excited about this topic and it giving me like a weird amount of energy is, is a, it's a perfect example of that, honestly. And I, I mean, I have been able to see throughout my life that I, I have uh, a lot of difficult, like a lot of procrastination. And like you talk about in the book, there is definitely an element of perfectionism there, but I can also see in certain, you know, with certain things, it's actually just that I don't care about the thing that I have to do, or I'm, I, you know, it's a, it's a part of my job or a job that I used to have that I really shouldn't be doing. You know, that is a big piece, I think as well. Yeah. And that can be such a meaningful lesson once we learn to listen to those feelings of like apathy or lack of drive or whatever, um, and take that as a cue of what matters to you or what you have that capacity for, instead of judging yourself for like not having the drive to do it. Yeah. So you know, there is a lot of research showing that procrastination and all these kinds of things that, you know, task avoidance or whatever that we sometimes call laziness. Sometimes it's because a person's overwhelmed. Sometimes it's because a person doesn't know how to start the task um, and, you know, is, is feeling perfectionistic. So nothing that they do is going to be good enough. So why start? But sometimes it's actually this incredibly rational response to something you don't want to do and don't value right. doing. Right. And that can be fine. If something's not important to you, you can kind of ask yourself why it isn't. And, you know, is there a reason why it should be? And if not, like, who cares? Right. Yeah. Do it if you must. And if you don't have to cross it off your to-do list, get rid of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So let's actually backtrack a little bit and talk about sort of the big premise of the book, which is the laziness lie. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Uh, so the laziness lie is this cultural belief system. Um, it's very prominent in the U.S., but also internationally. I've certainly certainly heard from a lot of people in a lot of different contexts who uh, experience it, but it is rooted um, historically in the Protestant work ethic and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and the laziness lie has kind of three unspoken tenets. Um, and the first one is your worth is your productivity, or yeah, your productivity is your worth, how much you're mm -hmm. achieving mm -hmm. kind of defines your value. Second uh, tenant is that there's always more you could be doing, um, whether that's politically for your loved ones, uh, making your home look better, exercising more. Just mm -hmm. you know, there's always more you could be supposedly cramming into your day. And then the, the third tenant of the laziness lie is that um, you can't trust your own needs and limitations. So if you're tired, if you don't want to do something, if you're having trouble focusing, uh, the laziness lie kind of tells us that we shouldn't take those feelings as valuable information. We should try to uproot those and destroy those feelings in ourselves because they're signs of weakness and laziness. Yeah, that's huge. So like the inherent lack of trust that we have in our bodies and in our intuition. Yeah, it's, we have, um, 
kind of a distorted relationship to consent kind of in regards to everything, not just sexual consent, but just consent in the workplace, consent in what volunteer opportunities you're, you know, comfortable having thrown in your lap, consent in terms of, you know, how much emotional responsibility are you willing to take on for others? It's just really hard to say no when we've moralized it so much that anytime you have a limit, it's a sign of you lacking willpower and a moral failing. It's kind of unlearning the belief that we are worthless if we are not constantly doing something. Yeah, yeah. It, it's um, And the research, I, I try not to lean too hard on the research that's very like, if you have time to do nothing, then that gives your mind space for creativity and insight. And so it'll actually pay off in the long run, right? Even right, though that's something, right, right, right. Because right. <laughs> that's not the, good, the reason to do it, right? Because then you're still kind of saying, oh, it's only okay because it's going to fill it's, up my you're health You're going to be productive if you're unproductive. I know, I know. It's so hard to like to not go there. Yeah, but it, that can be like a good, like, you know, a little bit of sugar to help the medicine go down for people who are kind of workaholics. Um, so that's one thing, you know, that I talk about that, like, it actually is going to be better for you, even in the th things that you're worried about, and that you, you know, unfortunately, are going to be measured on in, in jobs and things like that to just like, give yourself time to do absolutely nothing to kind of check in with your feelings to let your imagine imagination run wild. Um, and I did um, talk to a lot of therapists and corporate coaches um, and people like that to, to ask them, what are some tools that you prescribe to um, clients who are having trouble setting boundaries at work or in their families? Um, what, are, what are some things people can do to kind of stop and ask themselves before rushing in to take on a responsibility to kind of just go, is this my job? Uh, do I have the capacity to do this? And what are some ways, either direct or kind of indirect and sneaky, uh, to kind of get out of having this expectation put on me? Because we just have so much pressure coming from all directions. So there's a lot of ways that we have to kind of bob and weave to get out of some of those. Yeah. And one of the things you were you, that you wrote about in the book is that the 40-hour work week is too long for most people. Yeah, it's something that industrial organizational psychologists studying all kinds of workplaces have really known for like since the 80s. I think they had some initial wow. glimmerings in the 70s of it that um, if you just set out to describe rather than uh, prescribe how long should someone should be working, people come to an office or uh, another workplace and they really only are generating quote unquote something productive for you know three to four hours and four hours is really kind of a, a lot like three hours is pretty much the most work that you quote unquote get out of people i believe i believe that a million percent and i work for myself i like fully set my schedule and that is intuitively what my body wants to do i can do amazing work for three hours and then i'm like okay, I need to, you know, then I like, I like check out and I start doing other things and little errands and little projects and, um, that have nothing to do with work. That is exactly what I have found personally. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And I used to think I was like getting away with something. I was like, oh my gosh, I can get so much work done, you know, from like 10 AM to like 1 PM. Yes. And then, and then I'm just kind of like finding ways to like sneakily play video games on my computer in my office <laughs> or like whatever. Like I'm such a, I'm so naughty. I'm so evil um, <laughs> getting away with this, but the data just shows over and over again that that's how people behave. And so instead of, um, what a lot of workplaces do, which treat that as time theft or 
some right. problem that they have to solve. If this is a pattern we've noticed in every single field, regardless of whether or not people have access to the internet, you know, people find other ways to kind of quote unquote goof off, even if they don't have that distraction of the internet and social media. If that's just how people behave, why can't we just accept it? That right. that's, that's what people are capable of and that's what's good for them. And let's actually listen to that. And how nice to hear that reflected because it will normalize our, you know, our natural inclination that we feel so shameful about, like everyone else is working so hard. What's wrong with me? It's again, I mean, there are so many parallels to the food, you know, food obsession, quote unquote, food addiction beliefs. I really think the laziness and food quote unquote food addiction is very, very, very similar because we all secretly feel this shame that what's wrong with me? Why am I so hungry? Why am I so lazy? And it's actually stemming from uh, being overworked and underfed, honestly, and a yeah. culture that doesn't understand what we actually need as humans. Right. Yeah. We have had it so deeply ingrained that there's this external standard that's not realistic and we can't meet it of whatever, how much you're supposed to eat, what you're supposed to look like, how much you're supposed to get done and how long you're supposed to be working. And we've come to see our body's natural signals of, I need a nap. I need a break. I need a snack as this weird animalistic impulse that is evil or untrustworthy or a sign of our own unique failure and we have to just ignore it fight it bargain with it um everything except for accept it and listen to it and it just causes us so many problems and so much so much misery so much shame i mean it's really amazing how it just feeds itself like the whole Oh, all the shame feeds itself. And then we, yeah, I just, I see the, the cycle is so similar to, to the food, the food thing. Absolutely. I took yeah. so many, like I, <laughs> when I was reading, I was like copy pasting cause I was reading the PDF copy pasting into my notes, like every single paragraph I wanted to. So I have all of these notes and now as I'm looking through, I'm like, I can't even like, it's like, I wanted to just copy paste the whole book and like, <laughs> <laughs> Talk about all of it. But um, so one of the things I think is really profound that you said is, wait, you know, quote unquote, wasting time is a basic human need. And once mm. we accept that, we can stop fearing our inner laziness and begin to build healthy, happy, well-balanced lives. Like that's just something I feel like we're never told, never, ever, ever told that wasting time is actually healthy and important and completely normal and, and needed. Yeah. And the things that we call wasting time are actually like having a life, right? Yes. Like conversations over the water cooler or the digital equivalent of that, right? Those moments during your day, whatever your day looks like, where you're just connecting with other people and just kind of, you know, shooting the breeze or like chit-chatting, um, just daydreaming, watching the sunset, uh, taking a walk around the block, playing a video game, whatever it is eating a snack, like these are the moments where we get pleasure and stimulation, connection to other people. Um, that's when we have moments of surprise or awe, good things happening that we didn't expect that aren't our regular day-to-day -day grind. Um, that is the texture and tapestry of life. Mm. So feeling guilty about having those moments is, it's so deeply ingrained in us that we don't recognize how nonsensical it is. Like, oh, I need to get back to writing emails. Like, is that what I want my existence to be? <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. And you also said laziness is a warning. When we feel that pull to 
to, you know, to do whatever we categorize as laziness, even if it's like scrolling our phones, it, it is often a warning that we are burnt out or we're tapped out and we, we actually need that, that time to, to waste, quote unquote, or do nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our brains were not built to hyper-focus and to be alone doing something for hours and hours and hours. Um, you know, some people are a little bit more or better at it than others or, or more suited to that type of work. But a, a lot of um, neuroscience research and uh, productivity research shows over and over again that um, people's attention wavers. It comes in and out. You know, I've taught three hour long classes and we should never schedule classes that are three hours long because <laughs> people check out after like 20 minutes of, of one thing. You know, yeah. you just need to come up for air and that's not a bad thing. Um, that's just how we work. Yeah. Oh, I just love this. Okay. So I asked my Instagram followers in my story, well, I'd let them know that I was talking to you today and the name of your book. And we were talking about laziness and the laziness live. And I got a lot of questions. So can I, can I shoot some of them your way? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. So someone said, we we've sort of covered this, but should I feel guilty for not being able to force myself to be productive for a whole day? Oh my God. No, no, you, you should have, you, you know, like the, there's a reason that there are like labor organizers pushing for like a four day work week um, or even a three day work week. Like, again, that kind of lines up with the, with the three hours ish per day that a person can do, you know, really focus intensive work. Um, but people can't work, you know, five, six, seven days a week. And there's so many things that we do today that, uh, require a ton of um, focus and information processing that people from generations before just didn't have to do. So we just have such a constant drip of information that that's a level of work um, that other people in the past didn't have. Um, there's so much stress right now that your body just needs to find some way to offload. And we know that activating somebody's uh, fight or flight system with stress about the news and about COVID and things like that makes it really hard to focus or learn. Um, we're dealing with so many things right now. And even before COVID, we were dealing with way too many things. It is restorative and healthy and pleasurable um, and morally neutral, uh, neutral to good, let's say, uh, to have days where you don't do anything. Um, You need it and yeah, you should go for it if you can. Very often, anxiety, depression, body disconnection, substance abuse, and negative self-beliefs can actually be trauma responses and a sign that there's trauma to process in your healing journey. If you are interested in exploring trauma work, Caroline Pegram is a Salt Lake City-based licensed clinical social worker and somatic practitioner. For anyone new to the concept, somatic work is about accessing healing by feeling and getting back into the body, and it's very effective for addressing trauma. Through her practice, Topaz Trauma Healing, she offers online telemental health therapy and somatic work to folks across the country. Her approach is centered around embodied presence, empathy, connection, and deep listening. Her work is attachment-focused, which helps to reshape relationship patterns, and she's also inspired by polyvagal theory, an approach to create a sense of safety by using the nervous system. Caroline embraces a health at every size framework. She's motivated by restorative justice and allied with those who are LGBTQ, QIA identifying. She works with ages 13 and up, as well as families who are seeking a safe environment to take up space. 
If you're curious about integrating this kind of work into your healing journey, you can connect with Caroline through her Instagram at topaz.healing or visit her website at topaztraumahealing.com. So, okay. So yesterday on my story, when I, uh, when I asked for questions about laziness, I did not realize that the slide before I had a video of me opening this can of cold brew that came, uh, a box of like 30 cans of cold brew that came. And I said, hello, lockdown and laziness. And so I was like, (laughs) interesting that you talked about your laziness. And then I was saying, and then you're talking about how laziness does not exist. And I was like, oh, that's, I didn't even realize. I personally, at this point, do view laziness as like a, like a, like a neutral or even a positive, like leaning into the rebellion of like, you know what? I, I completely accept it. I think that finding ways to make my life easier in some ways is a good thing. Um, but it took me a very long time to get to this place and a lot of unlearning, Mm. but I still use the word. It's interesting because like, it's such a loaded word. Yeah. Yeah. We went back and forth, uh, to like go behind the curtain between my like publisher and editor and everyone about like, whether it should be like, uh, in defense of laziness, you're not lazy. Laziness doesn't exist. Like we went through a couple of different framings in thinking about this book because there's laziness, um, in the neutral sense of like feeling languid, feeling restful. Um, lazy Sunday has a good positive connotation. Yeah. Someone asked, someone actually asked that question. They said, uh, does that, you know, if laziness does not exist does that also mean that a lovely cozy day like lazy day doesn't exist either because that would make me sad and that's (laughs) all about the the word like the the what what we endow the word laziness with you know right yeah so the words um origins are um german and old english and they mean kind of like uh, that it's two root words are meaning uh like feeble or weak and uh morally corrupt right oh, so God. this idea yeah <laughs> so this idea that someone has a weakness or a lack in them that makes them kind of evil and sinful you know so like yeah. sloth basically right. um so when we think about laziness in terms of that moral condemnation aspect that's what i'm really talking about when i say laziness does not exist this idea right. that someone just chooses to disappoint people or just mm-hmm. chooses to not pull themselves up by their bootstraps or whatever but if you want to use laziness in the sense of like languid, restful, peaceful, I love that, you know? And it, when you have those feelings that you might, in your side of yourself, that you might want to label as laziness, um, I think that's also fine. It's just uh, not having that moral tinge to it. And instead right. going, oh, let's honor this feeling. Let's celebrate and like love this part of myself that's trying to protect me. Yeah, can we reframe, can we reframe the whole concept? Right, yeah. So someone said, can you touch on how laziness narratives and stereotypes harm BIPOC disproportionately? Oh, wow. Awesome. I'm so glad this was asked. Um, so th- this is touched on a little bit in the book, um, but it, it deserves so much more coverage. Um, part of why the Protestant work ethic became so ingrained into American culture and then was kind of spread through imperialism and, and, our, and like popular media to the rest of the world is because hatred of laziness was a very powerful tool of indoctrination and shame Mm -hmm. that um, enslavers put on enslaved people, right? So uh, this 
Christian idea that work will set you free or whatever, right. um, which of course was like hanging up over top of uh, Auschwitz in German, but it's also something that was was pushed and indoctrinated on enslaved people here in America. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that you are not free on this earth, but if you are virtuous, if you work hard enough, you'll be rewarded in heaven. And this is your true place is to work. Oh, so culty. It's like just yeah. so dark. Yeah. Yeah. It's so bleak. It's so dehumanizing, um, which, you know, that was an act of dehumanization. So of course, right. um, and so then it was, um, it was also spread to indentured uh, servants and uh, poor working class white people to a less extremely violent extent. Mm -hmm. But um, then uh, after abolition, it was also very useful to kind of keep those two exploited groups kind of separate and at each other's kind of throats instead of organizing together to kind of convince white people that, oh, black people are lazy, uh, Native American people are lazy alcoholics, these horrible stereotypes. You don't have to worry about joining up with them and fighting against the people that are actually exploiting you, the people who have all the wealth in the country, uh, because they actually are just trying to get a handout and you can't trust them. And it's just permeated our culture in so many ways when you look at just how uh, black and indigenous people were portrayed and still are portrayed in a lot of media um, as lazy um, wasting any benefit government benefits that they do get right, um, right welfare right, queens right. in the 80s that kind of stereotype um, and so it comes down especially hard and really reinforces that um, problem that we have that if that people of color in this country if they want to get by, they have to accomplish an absurd amount. They have to work incredibly hard. They have to be incredibly lucky on top of that um, to get just a shred of what um, a white person will get praised for being hard work, hardworking for. That's yeah. so true. And it's also used as one of the, you know, one of the pro capitalism, you know, wanting to not have more social services to kind of catch people. Um, is that if, if we have, you know, if, if people will be caught before, you know, while, while they're falling or before they fall, you know, no one's going to try or work hard at all. And it's just this cruel myth, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we see it in how um, disability benefits are treated as well. So um, to get any disability benefits, you have to really prove you're not this like mythological faker that everybody believes, like these people that are pretending to have disabilities supposedly to get, you know, $12,000 a year um, and not be allowed to have a savings account. Like it doesn't make any sense, but um, we've been taught to be suspicious of anyone who gets any kind of meager assistance and to view them as lazy instead of looking at what are the structures that failed these people and oppressed these people and got us in this place? Right. Well, that actually goes right into this next question, which is how to explain to people that I'm not lazy, I'm just depressed, and they don't see the connection between the two. Oh, it's so hard. And I will first say for this person, it's if to the extent that they can release some of the pressure on yourself to fight against decades and centuries of cultural programming, there are some people who are you're not gonna be able to educate, especially when you're depressed. Like right. it's really hard oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> to do that educating. Um, but um, I know it's also not always negotiable, right? I see it so much in my um, students talking about other professors that they've had or that they have who don't understand that sometimes they just need an extension because of a mental health day. Um, and mm -hmm. that that's just a fact. It's, it's a morally neutral thing. It's not, it, it's not laziness. Um, I think as much as we can um, to kind of spread the science on these things, um, we have to. And it's not just the depressed person 
whose responsibility that is, but really getting their friends and loved ones to also step up and educate other people about the fact that just staying alive and staying um, whatever functional looks like for you at any given moment as a depressed person is incredibly time consuming yeah. um, and incredibly energy consuming and you just don't have as much in you. Um, and so I think for a person in that situation, who who do you need to convince in order to get some of the accommodations that you need and to get by? Um, focus on kind of giving the data and giving the information to those people and anyone who is just tearing you down and belittling you, whether it's a family member or a friend or coworker who doesn't have power over you, um, don't don't make it your job to educate them because it's just there's so many people uh, that need to come around on that. And, yeah. yeah, and this all applies to more than just specifically depression. It applies to chronic fatigue. It applies to other mental health struggles. Um, I feel like it's actually pretty similar. Uh, the same thing that people experience if they're if they've had this feeling of being lazy and exhausted for a really long time, but it's actually stemming from a very legitimate place that people, you know, that other people may not recognize or understand or respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The burden is always on the person who's suffering to prove that they actually are suffering. Um, whether it's marshalling up doctor's notes, therapist notes, um, making sure that they are proving that they're doing the best that they can. They've tried every possible thing. Um, and there's still this latent assumption and you know anybody with um any kind of chronic condition has had that well have you tried yoga right <laughs> have you tried eating green have you tried this there's this baseline assumption that you're not doing enough you haven't tried everything and it's right. actually your fault right right which just feeds the exhaustion and stress and overwhelm in the first place yeah so here's a loaded question uh are lazy people, right? So that's making an assumption in the first place, but are lazy people less stressed or more or both? Oh, I wonder what this person's asking. I get, I like, are they asking about people who are, you know, called lazy and actually what's going on is they like have like, I don't know, undiagnosed ADHD, depression, something else going on, right, maybe right, probably, right. probably a bunch of things going on that you can't see. Uh, in which case they're like incredibly stressed, right? Yeah. I think most of the people that as a society we call lazy are people who have been robbed of agency in some kind of way or disempowered structurally in some kind of way, probably have some kind of internal struggle going on that you can't see, whether, if, like I said, it's depression, ADHD, chronic fatigue, trauma, any, you know, who right, knows? Right. And the people around them can't see or have refused to accept as legitimate those struggles, right? Right. So I think those people are some of the most stressed people around. Um, and we know from psychological research that people who don't have power, um, that's the worst type of stress physiologically right. that you can experience. Right. Yeah. So, and it affects so your health more than anything else too. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it makes your, your DNA degrade and then you age at a quicker pace, heart disease, so many things are impacted by not having control over your circumstances. And that's why health disparities also racially are so prominent. Um, and health outcomes, even with COVID, uh, have such a huge racial disparity. Mm -hmm. But if they're asking about someone who is just like, uh, quote unquote, lazy in the sense of like, they're honoring their boundaries, they are only doing things that they ha absolutely have to do. Right. Like the, people, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Low stress, chill, awesome people. And we should, you know, there's a certain amount of privilege that comes with being able to do that. But That's also, true. we should look at like, Learn, take notes from those people's uh, boundaries and uh, self-advocacy skills because they're probably doing great. Yes, 
Yeah, yeah. It, it really does depend on how we are, how we are defining lazy with that question. Um, someone said, my students say they are too lazy for online school and admit defeat with no action. Thoughts? Oh, wow. This is a perfect example of how being under a lot of stress uh, and not having control over your circumstances can lead to this um, sense of learned helplessness. Mm. So that's a big symptom of burnout is feeling powerless. You're not just apathetic. You feel like nothing you do matters um, and nothing you do can make a difference. Um, and so you really don't have the drive to even kind of try to overcome that. Um, so I think that's probably what's going on with a lot of these students. Um, yeah. Online school is really hard. Um, Zoom fatigue is is legitimate. So real. It's so, <laughs> so real. real. <laughs> and, it, and it's also like such a soft term for what it actually is, right? Like we have like existential dread of having to sit and pretend to be chipper and productive while the world is burning around us. Yes. Um, and we're constantly getting notifications about new ways that it's burning and sometimes literally burning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, so, you know, I think honoring with these students, honoring the fact that they're, what they're going through is really difficult and really hard is important and um, affirming for them that they are not responsible for, for overcoming all of those feelings or resolving all of that is important. And then I think talking about triage is, is really how I've been approaching education this whole year. Like, what are the things that you really absolutely as a teacher need to impart to your students what are the skills that in the next year it'll be really good for them if they have those skills um, and those skills might actually not be the content of the class it might be something like email me when you're going through something hard so we can plan together um, how to over how to work with it and accept it and, and accommodate it um, those kinds of skills might be important there might be certain content that you really need to hammer home for them and the flip side of that question is what can you cut back on mm -hmm. if they're that overwhelmed that they feel that they're in the learned helplessness stage you are in a um, triage situation so get them through by focusing on the bare minimum crucial things to keep them going and then lighten their burden as much as you can, give them alternate ways to do assignments, extend deadlines, get rid of deadlines, get rid of some assignments, get rid of some content that is a little bit more fluff and padding. Um, and that does not make you a bad teacher and that does not make them bad students if that's what they need right now, um, because we are just all trying to do way too much. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And something that I don't know if we've like directly touched on is something that you talk a lot about in at least the beginning of the book, which is that so many of us and so many people who believe that they are lazy are actually just burnt out <laughs> and actually just trying to do too much and actually just completely overwhelmed and then beating ourselves up for not wanting to do anything anymore. Yeah, and that's just a natural uh, crash that's going to happen when you've been doing too much for far too long, whether that's emotional work, um, information work, you know, physical work, whatever it is, usually a combo of those things. Um, with, with expectations that are too high right. on ourselves. Yeah. yeah, with expectations that are too high. So you've just for months or years or maybe your whole lifetime not gotten enough sleep, not gotten enough time off, not had enough time to just let your mind like play and be silly or like spend time with friends or like do something that's not ever going to impress somebody else. Right. Yes. Um, and that just keeps building up and building up. So eventually you have this huge crash and you're capable of even 
less than you were um, before and you still didn't think you were doing enough back then. Um, and so, and burnout can be traumatic. Um, and that's something I think people also don't recognize the full scope of. The way that yeah. it affects your ability to think, it affects your um, risk-taking capacity, um, it affects your ability to empathize with other people. So you actually feel like kind of compassion for other people's emotions less um, and you're emotionally more numb. These are really pervasive effects and none of them are your fault. If you're going through them, it means you've been doing too much for far, far too long and it's time to really regroup yeah, and drop and I, as much as you can. Yes, and I think again, very similarly to the food thing is that culturally we have this idea of what is uh, normal or what, what we should be able to handle. Like for instance, with food, it's like, oh, I should be able to eat 1200 calories a day and be fine and have energy and be able to do that for the rest of my life. And with, you know, with this productivity, it's like, well, I should be able to have a job and have three kids and, um, you know, travel the world and, you know, do X, Y, Z and have all this energy and look amazing and blah, 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 that that's normal. Like our expectations for what we think we should be able to handle are too, are too high. And we expect that we should be able to do too much. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. is an inherent part of the problem. Right. Yeah. The standards and the diet culture analogy is so perfect because the standards we've been told are, this is what the normal person does is something that actually we know descriptively and medically is not what anyone does and is not healthy for anyone <laughs> to be doing. Right. It's so messed up. Right, like, right, right. So, okay. Well, someone asked this question. I struggle to get up in the morning, even with enough sleep at night. How is that not lazy? Oh gosh. Uh, it's so funny, but nobody ever comes to me and asks like, well, what about my lazy husband? What about this person? It's always like, no, I am the lazy one. Right. Like, people, right. people are so convinced that they are the lazy one. You know, there's a lot of things that could be going on there. Again, like uh, the ADHD example is one I like to bring up because people, a lot of people just don't, don't recognize it. And that's just a population that, um, gets so demonized uh, right you might have right. you might have some kind of neurodiversity where uh, being active at different hours of the day than kind of the, kind of the standard virtuous schedule uh, might be better for you so if you're you know you're tired in the morning it could be some kind of uh, neurodiversity thing or mental health thing uh, if you're depressed you're just gonna always feel tired maybe you need more sleep than what you're actually getting right now right um, there you know, there's so many things that could be going on with someone who wakes up and still feels tired. But what that signals to me at the end of the day is you're tired. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. It's that simple. It's that simple. Yeah. yeah. So explore that, you know, it may or may not be that you need to sleep in later. Um, it may be that you just need to like that those first few hours of the morning are not your hours for like, I need to get stuff done. You know, like there are like for me, like from three to 5 PM, I am just not a productive person. Those are my hours where I just have like brain fog yes. and I need to just like do something else instead of try to work. So it could also be that's the case for the person. Like we all have good hours and bad hours, but I would say just like listen to it and kind of study it, figure out what it is um, with more, with less of a spirit of judgment. Um, yes. And I would also, yeah, yeah. And I would also say that, you know, this saying enough sleep at night, I think is maybe something to explore as well. What if it's mm. not enough sleep? What if you think that you only need seven hours, but maybe you really need nine during these months for whatever reason? Um, Absolutely. I think that, you know, I, I can't say for sure that that's something that's going on with this person, but it, it could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Oh my goodness. Okay. Just a couple more minutes and then I'll let you go. But my God, I have like, like 50 more questions that I'll never be able to get. <laughs> I know I could, I could talk about this stuff all day. I know so I could do. Clearly I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to save these questions for something else. But, um, let me just see if I can pick the best. Um, I should have highlighted some of these. Do, 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 do. Okay. Someone said, how to differentiate between self-sabotage and an actual need for rest? Ooh, I, I don't know that I really believe that self-sabotage really exists. Either. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's again, just this sort of like cultural belief that we're all self-sabotaging and that right. we just need to stop self-sabotaging and then we'll be like so amazing and productive and impressive. Yeah, it's one of those like pop spike self-help concepts that are very um, reinforcing the status quo and blaming the victim for whatever it is they're going through, right? Like you're just not living up to your potential, but the assumption is you need to be doing X, Y, and Z. Um, so I would say first, like again, question for yourself, like if you're if you're that person, like whether self-sabotage even makes sense or is a useful framework for you. Um, I do certainly think there is kind of that learned helplessness thing that happens, which again is still a little bit of a loaded term, that idea of just internalizing like, I've tried so hard at so many things and I've just been told so often that I'm not good enough or that it didn't matter. Um, so like, what are the things that have kind of gotten in your way and have um, made you internalize some self-doubt and how can you work on those? Like that's, those are great questions. Yeah. Um, those are real things. Um, but I think it really can't hinge on, I need to do more and prove that all along I really was capable of more and that it was always my fault in the past that I wasn't doing more. Cause that's, that's just the cultural programming. Again, I know a lot of teachers tell people that at a really young age. Right. Um, I know a lot of parents tell their kids that there's a lot of places where we get that message that you're capable of doing so many things. And if you're having a hard time, it's because you're not trying hard enough. And I think the real question is, what were you not getting that you needed? And what are you still not getting? Yes. And I was, I was, I was, for my second book, I was looking at a study that was saying that this generation, our, you know, our generation and our younger generation have so much stress, stress from the pressure that was put on us and that we then put on ourselves to be unique and impressive and amazing and we can do anything we set our minds to which on you know in one way is wonderful you know we should believe that we can do great things but the dark side of that is this like underlying anxiety and stress and expectation and, and nothing that we do is ever enough because of that mm -hmm. yeah and i think that's also partially where this idea comes from the response that i get from a lot of people of oh yeah no 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 i understand that other people are overwhelmed but i'm lazy. I'm mm -hmm. not doing enough. Mm -hmm. It's we're not giving ourselves room to be human, to be like mundane, normal people. It's uh, we have these very like grandiose uh, expectations put on us to like save the world when nobody can do that. And it's not healthy to aspire to do that. I think it kind of erodes our humanity to try to be superhuman. Um, and yeah. instead just accepting that we are people who uh, we need other people. We need help. Also, you know, we need breaks. We're interdependent. None of us are these individualistic superheroes who can do everything and have no limits that we see in media over and over again. And that's actually a good thing. It's actually like beautiful that we're this interconnected web, yeah. um, you know. 
Yeah. Okay. So the very last question I'm going to ask is someone who asked, how do I explain this to a partner and a judgy family? Like, how do I explain that? I'm not lazy. I'm just, I need, I need time. Mm, I think if they're a judgy family, who's throwing this a lot at you, there's also a question of like, how much time do you want to be spending with them? How much time and energy do you want to spend trying to convince them of something if they've been giving you a lot of shame? So Um, true. Such a good no. question. <laughs> I'm going to answer you, this question with a question. Yeah, <laughs> what are you doing? I, <laughs> that's just always my first thing when it's something about like family or someone's putting a lot of pressure on you. Like, what are they, how much can you just like get out of under that cloud, you know, because they've probably been undermining you your whole life if that's that's their kind of framework and maybe there's some people there that what you actually need to do is, is talk to them less and and submit yourself less to like being evaluated by them um you know so i think that's a big part of it um i think hopefully that's not the case with the partner since they also asked about their partner i hope that yeah. um, that you have a partner who's who you can feel um and maybe some family members who you can feel some hope of can i get through to this person can i help teach them to have more compassion for me yeah maybe you could give them the book laziness does not exist. <laughs> I guess that's probably what I should say. That's probably what my like publicist wants me to say. Read the book. Uh, but I think I think the like if they don't want to read the book, the like, you know, short summary kind of is people don't do things that don't make sense. People do what they're capable of. No mm-hmm. one wants to be a failure. No one yeah. wants to be a disappointment. Um so if you're looking at someone and you just see like a failure or see laziness, clearly you're missing a huge part of the picture. Some need that's not being met, um, probably a litany of barriers and challenges that they need help on or that um, are in their way, uh, internal struggles and traumas, and we're holding them to a bar that is just really absurd and ridiculous most of the time. So so that's the kind of really quick elevator pitch for those things that, yeah. you know, look harder, have some humility that you don't know what's going on in somebody's life, trust them if they say that they're tired or that they need help. Um, And if someone can't hear that, then again, it's not on you to open up their heart to that. You really can't. Um, That shouldn't be your burden either. Yeah, that's great advice. Devin, I can't even begin to tell you how exciting this conversation was for me, how much more I could talk about it. And I'm so glad that you came on the podcast to talk about all of this. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. And the questions were, were great. I'm so glad we got to dive into so many different avenues of this thing. I know. And there are so many more questions. Um, Can you let everyone know where they can find you and where they can find your book? Yeah. um, So you can find laziness does not exist Um, right now. It's available for pre-order anywhere that you buy books, support your local bookstore if you can. Um, and it comes out January 5th. Um, and then my other writing is at Devin Price, um, D-E-V-O-N Price at uh, dot medium.com. And then all, all of the like social medias, it's Dr. Devin Price. So Instagram and Twitter, I'm on there a lot. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. As usual, you can find all the links you're looking for in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening. I will be back in two weeks to ramble in your ears once more. I know this was a very low ramble episode because it was primarily a conversation with Dr. Devin Price, but don't worry. I will be here to be brain dead in your ears once more. There's always time. Um, so I hope you are going to have a lovely and safe Thanksgiving. 
I know it's a bizarro year, but I hope that you can make it cozy and warm and taste really good no matter what you're doing. And I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.